Welcome to the Light and Hope podcast here at Britain Christian Church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, here's Pastor Mike. Our study of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 last week, and so we're starting a brand new study of chapter 10 this week. We don't do it like that. You know, I guess it could be said of any period of time, but I believe that you and I are living in some really strange days. There seems to be a new war breaking out most every day. And I'm not talking about wars between nations, even though there are plenty of those going on. I'm talking about culture wars, wars in families, war among friends, war going on in churches, and the list goes on and on and on. The scripture that I've been studying this past week includes this sentence. Listen to this. For though we live in the world... We do not wage war like the world does. We need that reminder in these strange days in which we are living because far too often those who fill pews on Sundays are the same ones who will wage war just like the world on Monday through Saturday. In our scripture for this morning, we're going to find out there's a better way. There's a better way. For the past several weeks, As we've been going through chapters 8 and 9, we've learned that God loves a cheerful giver. And and Paul wanted to be made known to the people in Corinth how important it was that they would use their resources to bless their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who were being persecuted and who were hungry. Their good work would not only help their brothers and sisters in Christ, but it would also bring glory to God and it would knit their hearts together together with those brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Well, today, as we turn to chapter 10, we're reminded that the skeptics and the antagonists who were working to undermine Paul's ministry in Corinth, they had not gone away. While Paul was away from Corinth, while he was busy sharing the gospel in Ephesus and discipling new believers there in Ephesus, those false apostles were busy trying to win the church over to themselves. They were willing to use any tactics necessary to accomplish their goal. The motivation and the focus of Paul was altogether different than the motivation and the focus of Paul's adversaries. Paul was seeking to lead people to Jesus while his adversaries were seeking to gain notoriety and fame for themselves. They were erudite scholars, philosophers who had a command of the language, who, who, who had charisma and could wow the audience with their arguments. Paul, on the other hand, he preached Jesus Christ and him crucified, period. Period. Go back with me to Paul's first letter to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, it's been a long while, so I want to refresh your memory of what's been going on in Corinth. We'll read verses 1 through 7 together, and you can get an idea of what I'm talking about. Paul says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except what? And him crucified. That's right. I came to you, Paul says, in weakness 
with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. You see, Paul sat down and he wrote 1 Corinthians in about 54 A.D. These words that we just read, and you can tell those words, they're trying to, Paul's trying to tell the people in Corinth, hey, I didn't come with all of these things that you're seeing. Persuasive words, I don't stroke my chin and quote Aristotle or Plato, I proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I do. Well, a year had passed from the time Paul wrote these words to when he sat down and he wrote 2 Corinthians. And the false apostles are still there. They are still there trying to discredit Paul. They're still working to win the church over to themselves. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, these words. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid, underline that in your Bible, we're going to come back to that, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you went away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. I want you to read that with me out loud. Here we go, everybody. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. <clears throat> when Paul penned that very first sentence, he had something very specific in mind. Something his accusers were saying about him. If you'll remember, Paul, he was in Ephesus when he heard that the church that he had established in Corinth, there was trouble in that church. And so Paul left Ephesus to go back to Corinth to try and mediate, try and iron out the problems. And when Paul got there, somebody in the church stood up and confronted Paul in front of the whole church. Paul didn't make a scene. He didn't get into a fight. He exited the meeting and he went back to Ephesus. And when he got back to Ephesus, he sat down and he wrote a letter, what we know as the severe letter. We don't have that letter, but we know that Paul wrote it because he references it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Read along with me, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you, that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. 
not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So Paul's accusers in Corinth, when, when, when Paul showed up at the church to help, and some, somebody stood up and made a fool out of themselves in cutting Paul down to size, well, the people, the false apostles were using that to say, what a wimp. Oh, Paul's a big man when he's got a pen in his hand. But did you, say the, did you see the way he shrunk and cowardly walked out when somebody stood up to him? Paul didn't fight back. He didn't cause a scene. Why? I mean, why didn't Paul just bow up and knock the guy out? That's the way, that's the way real men settle things, isn't it? In the world, you're exactly right. But remember, we do not wage war as the world does. We do not wage war as the world does. Let's read verses 1 through 2 together once again. By the humility and gentleness of Christ. That's how Paul comes back. By the humility and the gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you went away. I beg you, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. So Paul, instead of fighting fire with fire, he appealed to the people of Corinth by the humility and the gentleness of Christ. Paul knew what was being said about him. That's why those words, timid, I, I who am timid when in your presence, that's what they were saying about him. But bold went away with you. Paul's adversaries were painting him as weak and timid, but evidently they didn't know Paul could have easily handled them no problem. They must not have known his backstory. They must not have known his history. But you remember that before Paul came to Christ, you remember he was present when Stephen was stoned to death, right? You remember before Paul came to know Jesus, he was on his way to Damascus to arrest all of the followers of Jesus. Paul was going to drag them by the collar all the way back to Jerusalem. Those are not the behaviors of a timid, milquetoast man. But once Paul became a follower of Jesus, he gained a new direction in life. He gained a new model in life. And Paul gained a new purpose in life. His direction? To walk in Jesus' steps. His model? To live as Jesus lived. And his new mission in life? His new mission was to carry out the purpose for which God had called him in Christ. It was Paul's ambition to be so consumed with Jesus that when he spoke, people heard Jesus speaking. And when Paul interacted with other people, they saw how Jesus would interact with people. That is why Paul appealed to his friends by the humility and the gentleness of Christ instead of fighting fire with fire. You see, Jesus himself, in Matthew 11, he said this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said, I am gentle and humble in heart. 
The word that Jesus used, which is translated gentle, it's the same word that Paul used in verse 1 of our scripture for this morning that's translated humility. In most other translations of the New Testament, it's translated as meekness. But it is the Greek word proutis, and it's used to describe those that are free of anger and bitterness and hatred and a desire for revenge. Paul used to describe, the word that Paul used to describe the gentleness of Jesus is the Greek word epikia. The word describes kindness and reasonableness, fairness and moderation. One Bible dictionary describes this word this way. For those in positions of superiority, epikia is an easygoing quality that moderates the inflexible severity of wrath. A fairness that corrects anything that might be odious or unjust in the strict application of the law. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, Paul writes that gentleness is an essential character trait for any church leader. In James, in James chapter 3, verse 17, James contrasts the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. Listen to this. James asks, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, it is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. In Galatians 5, Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the works of the spirit. The works of the flesh are those things which come from our, our sin nature. Nobody has to teach us how to do those things. Whereas the fruit of the Spirit, these things do not come naturally from you and me. Paul says, from the flesh comes hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy. That's how the world wages war. Those things right there. But the fruit of the Spirit those character qualities that do not come from you and me, not naturally do they come from us, these character qualities are the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which indwells every follower of Jesus. If you are a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And the Holy Spirit produces fruit, just like an apple tree produces apples or an orange tree produces oranges, the Holy Spirit's desire is to produce this fruit in you. What fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul's way of dealing with his adversaries was totally different than the way most of us deal with those who antagonize us. I knew I wouldn't get an amen. Because we justify ourselves, right? I mean, Mike, I love them, but I can't stand them. Come on now. Where do you read that in Scripture? 
that Jesus loved somebody, but he couldn't stand them. That's certainly not the way he dealt with you and me. And when I read the way that Jesus dealt with people, and when I examine and think about the ways that Jesus dealt with me, all of those years in rebellion, and yet he loved me. And he continued to love me. That challenges me to love others. You see, Paul, the way that he dealt with his adversaries in Corinth, it was totally different than the way that most of us deal with those who antagonize us. Those that we don't like for whatever reason. And those that don't like us for whatever reason. Those who disagree with us. And those that we have hurt who instead of offering us forgiveness, desire to destroy us and do us in. And the list goes on and on. Paul writes in verses 3 and 4, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. You see, Paul and you and I, we live in the world. Amen? There is no difference between you and me and every other person who walks around on the planet. We are subject to all of the pain and sorrow. We are subject to all of the temptations. And we are subject to all of the peculiarities and problems that all people on the planet are subject to in this life. But folks, we are not just in the world. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are also in Christ. Not just in the world, in Christ. And a byproduct of being in Christ is that you and I do not wage war in the way that the world does. Amen. The weapons we use to fight our battles, they are not the weapons of this world. David Garland writes, To wage war according to the flesh means that one relies on flimsy, human resources that are void of any divine power and that one is likely to resort to shameful, underhanded means to gain a desired victory. That's the way the world wages war. David goes on to say, Paul's methods are not fleshly methods. He does not rely on cunning or deception to ensure that he will win. His power is God's power, which means that he fights according to God's rules of engagement. There is to be a clear difference between the followers of Jesus and the people of the world, those who have no desire whatsoever to follow Jesus. And look, folks, I'm not talking about being weird or self-righteous or super spiritual. What I'm talking about is a pursuit of being like Jesus. And the way that we deal with people, in the way that we carry out relationships with the world. We are to be like Jesus. I mean, I'm not talking about being religious. Jesus was very harsh with the most pious people of his day, the Pharisees, right? You can be super pious. You can quote the Bible from here to this time next week and not be like Jesus. There was a stark contrast between Jesus and the people of the world, as well as the religious leaders of his day. And if you and I are seeking to follow in Jesus' steps, then we will desire that there will be a difference between us and the people of this world in our day as well. Peter described us as foreigners and exiles. I love that. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. We are not to do life like those who do not know Jesus. And neither are we to fight our battles in the same way that the world fights theirs. I was reminded this past week of a book that I read a long time ago. A book that I read while I was in seminary called The City of God by St. Augustine. St. Augustine wrote that book before the fall of the Roman Empire. It's an old book. And in Augustine's book, he compares and contrasts the city of God with the city of man. The city of God is established, it is rooted in a love for God, whereas the city of man is founded and rooted in a love for self. Everything in the city of man is carried out in order to please the self, to satisfy the self. Everything in the city of man, uh, nothing is more important in the city of man than doing whatever you need to do to satisfy your desire to be happy because you are the center in the city of man. Well, the citizens of the city of God, they live their lives for a totally different reason. The citizens of the city of God live their life for the glory of God. Nothing is more important than enjoying God and bringing glory and honor to God for those citizens. Therefore, self is unimportant in comparison to enjoying God and bringing him glory. Part of what Augustine attempted to do in writing the city of God, part of his attempt was to expose the myth of Rome. The empty ideology and propaganda set forth as the highest idea coming from the minds of men in the Roman Empire. Well, we may not live in the Roman Empire today, but there is certainly no question in my mind that we are living under this same myth of Rome right here in the United States of America. The ideal that is set forth out there on the streets that is constantly hammered into our hearts and our minds is that our own personal happiness is the highest, loftiest aim for you to pursue in your life. So if somebody opposes you, if someone attacks your character, then you should do everything in your power to get back at them, to shut them down and silence them. Folks, we are all born as citizens of the city of man. Every single one of us. But for those who have become followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, we have become citizens of the city of God. And that is because of what Jesus has done for you and me. In Colossians, we learned that we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son. Look at Colossians 1 with me in verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, Giving joyful things to the Father who has qualified you. Who qualified you? Look at that verse. The Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has done what? He has rescued us. 
from the dominion of darkness, and He has brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been rescued by Jesus. I, I, I want you to hear that because that is not what the typical American Christian believes today. If you were to go to the mall with your clipboard and your pen and look really official and say, could I have just a moment of your time? When you die, what happens next? Do you think you'll go to heaven? Do you think you'll just rot in the grave? What? And the, people, the majority of people would say, well, I hope I'll go to heaven. And if you follow that up with, I have one more question for you. What do you base that hope on? The vast majority of the people that will answer you will say this. Well, I have tried to live a good life. I've tried to live a good life. I really have. Let me tell you, trying to live a good life ain't going to cut it. It's just not going to cut it. It's like, well, I tried to jump across the Grand Canyon. That's not going to work out for you. But, but have no fear. That is exactly the reason Jesus came. He rescued us. While we were falling to the bottom, trying to live that good life, on our way to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, Jesus came in and scooped you up and opened your eyes so that you could see your greatest need in life. Now, here's the last part of Augustine's book. Because God has rescued us, many Christians today think, well, I'm going to stay away from the world. No, no, no. God didn't save you and me to isolate us so that we could just huddle up like a covey of quail. No, he saved us to send us. Amen. To show this world a foretaste of what it's going to be like when the kingdoms of men become the kingdom of our God, as Revelation says. You and I are lights sent out in that dominion of darkness. To love people in the way that Jesus loved them. To give them a foretaste. It's like those Jewish exiles that were taken into Babylon. We are to seek the welfare of this city. Amen. And we can't do that if we're living like the world. It's one thing, let's move on. We're going to run out of time. It's one thing for you to tell me as a follower of Jesus that I'm not to wage war like the world does, but I need more. Tell me how I am to wage war. Well, thank you if you'll look at the next verse. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. When Paul mentions demolishing strongholds, he has in mind the warfare tactics of his day. Every city had a wall around it to protect its citizens. And when an army came in, the, the, the army would attack the city wall, and then the army would overtake the enemy soldiers, would capture the enemy soldiers. Well, when Paul says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, what kind of weapon has divine power to demolish strongholds? Well, for Paul, there was only one weapon. Scott Haithman writes, in particular... Paul's weapons are the manifold proclamation of the truth of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. 
embodied in, and mediated through his own life and suffering. The truth, listen to this, the truth of the gospel will overcome anything and anyone standing in its way. The truth of the gospel, which we find in the word of God, that is our weapon. You have to understand, those who opposed Paul in Corinth were not his real enemy. Paul knew that he was in a spiritual battle for the hearts, the minds, and the souls of the people of Corinth and for his adversaries. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul wrote, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Those that we think are our enemy are not our enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against those that we think are our enemy. But our struggle is against Satan and the unseen spiritual forces that are at work in this world in which you and I live. The enemy had blinded the minds of Paul's adversaries so that they could not see. And the enemy was working to blind the minds of the citizens of Corinth so they could not understand. That was Paul's battle, and he would not be distracted from proclaiming the truth of the gospel. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 5, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Did you hear that? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That was true in 55 AD when Paul wrote this. And let me tell you, it is true this very morning. The enemy is still blinding the minds of unbelievers. And it is the gospel and the gospel alone which will remove the veil from our eyes and enable us to see, to truly see for the very first time. What is it that the people of Corinth needed to see? Did they need to see the truth of what Paul was saying and the falsehoods that the false apostles are speaking? That wasn't their greatest need. That was certainly a need, but it wasn't their greatest need. Their greatest need is the very same thing that all of us in here this morning, which is our greatest need, and that is forgiveness and to be reconciled to God the Father. And folks... There is just absolutely no way for you to do that apart from Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'm on a different spiritual path. Let me tell you, there's a dead end sign at the end of it. Turn around. Come back to Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by him. You see, if we were to sit down, if I were to, you, you've got a bulletin this morning. If I said, turn that bulletin over for the next 30 minutes, I want you to be quiet, be in an attitude of prayer, and, and I want you to write down what are the greatest needs that you have right now, this morning. What are the things that, if you could change anything about your life, you would change this, write it down. 
we would all have something to write down. But I promise you this, what is on your list would not be what's on God's list as your greatest need. We would point out our issues. When the truth of the matter is, our greatest issue is just what Trey was talking about at the Lord's table. It is sin. And I don't mean the things that we do that we would categorize as sin. I mean our sin nature. Sin flows from you and me just as freely as water flows from a spring. We don't have to think about it. I've said it a hundred times before, and it's as true this morning as it's ever been in the past. You go up to that nursery, and you look at those sweet little children that some people say are born innocent and pure. No way, no how could sin have anything to do with those little ones. They are tearing each other apart for a teddy bear right now, as we said in the sanctuary. And nobody had to teach them to do that. Hey, don't worry. If we go upstairs and we see your child acting like that, not one of us will look at you going, what are you teaching that kid at home? You didn't have to teach her anything. She was born knowing how to do that. Each year at the end of the year, millions, untold millions of people take stock of their lives and they determine that they're going to make some changes. Not even, I'm not talking about people that are Christians. There's like something innate within us that knows I need to change. And so we write down these things. For some, they're going to get rid of bad habits. For others, they're going to start some new habits. They're going to work on their anger issues. They're going to change their eating habits. They're going to be more loving, less critical, less snarky. You name it, it'll show up on somebody's list. Those are the issues that we deal with. But our issue is much, much deeper than that. It is a sin issue. Because God loves us, he refused to leave us with no hope and no future, and he sent his son. The one who is without sin, who never sinned, who came into this world, as Philippians says, you guys that are going to be joining me Wednesday morning for Promise Keepers, we're going to study Philippians all semester long, and you're going to be blown away. It is the most powerful little letter. But Jesus, who was God, did not count equality with God as something to be held on to. So he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, and he died for you and me. But death could not hold him. On the third day he arose, and death is defeated. And you and I can live free, free, Freely reconciled to God the Father, knowing that Christ paid for our sin. You see, we focus so much on issues instead of fo focusing on that sin nature problem that we have. We try to fix our issues without coming to Jesus. This past week, I had lunch with a friend of mine that's been leading worship and teaching God's Word at Joseph Harp Correctional Center for the last 15 years. He goes down every other week leads worship, playing his guitar, and then teaches the Word of God. This past week while we were talking, he told me about an inmate there who was there the very first week, 15 years ago. This man has come to know Christ, and, and his life has radically been changed. My friend said he is now the unofficial pastor at Joseph Hart Prison. And he has been for years. It's just amazing how Jesus... He, he, he sees it as God's calling to be a, a prison chaplain. 
And he told my friend this past week, every time I see a new inmate come in, I pull up alongside of him. I want to get to know that young man. I listen and I love. I listen and I love because I want them to know they have a friend inside the walls. And he said, you know, the more I listen and the more I love, they are willing to open up to me and they tell me about their life. And they talk to me about their issues, things that are causing them big problems. And you know what I've learned through all these years? I've learned that the issues aren't the issue. That if they will surrender their heart to Jesus Christ, Jesus will iron out the issues during the process of sanctification. The issues are not the issue. The issue is surrendering to Jesus. That's the place where change happens. Let me tell you, that man is not an unofficial chaplain there at Joseph Harp. That man is a Bible teacher. That is the truest truth you will ever hear. It's not only true for the inmates at Joseph Harp. It's true for every single one of us that are in here this morning. We need the gospel. We need the truth of God's word to tear down the strongholds in our hearts, in our minds that the enemy has built so that our eyes will be open to a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of dealing with others, even our adversaries, a new way of waging war in this world. How about you? Are there strongholds in your heart, in your mind? Boy, I'll tell you, this morning in the early service, God convicted me. Those people that I've seen as enemy, they are not my enemy. They are my opportunity to love them in the way that Jesus has loved me. Don't wage war like the world does. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me tell you, if you're not a Christian, that's the first step. None of this, none of us are capable of living this kind of life. It is only Christ in us, which enables us by the Holy Spirit to not wage war like the world does. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come forward. Give me your hand as you give Jesus your heart. We will meet this week and we'll talk about discipleship, what it means to grow in your relationship with the Lord to come to an understanding of God's Word, to mature as a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a member of any church, if you're looking for a church home, you've just kind of been wandering around, and you feel like God is calling you to put roots down with a group of believers that are seeking to walk in Jesus' steps, then we will welcome you with open arms. If you're looking for a church family, come forward, and we'll welcome you this very morning. As we stand to sing the song of invitation, won't you come? Thanks for listening today. You can watch past sermons on our YouTube channel, Britain Church. Be sure to connect with us on social media as well. We would love to see you on Sunday morning for one of our services at 8.30 or 10.40. Have a great week.